0: Well, we don't tend to do a series at NewSpring unless we are assuming that it will be helpful. Like, we we do think about that ahead of time, but I think we sort of underestimated um, the power of the topic that we've kind of tapped into here. I don't think we realized what kind of a raw nerve we were going to be touching uh, when we start talking about desperados, when you love somebody who's lost their way. I think we're learning that just about everybody in the room has somebody. There's somebody in your life that you would easily point to and say, I just don't get it. I don't get why they're doing this. It doesn't make any sense. And so we're spending these four weeks trying to talk not about... The, maybe the nuts and bolts of what a desperado's life is like and how they turn around because that's something they're gonna have to be processing right now. The series was built for you. It was built to say, what do you do when you're trying to be a God follower and you're trying to do what God has called you to do and yet you got a lot of complicated questions because the other person is causing you to have to face a lot of complicated situations. Um, one of the things that we've heard from people is we've invited questions through social media is we've heard that sort of, I mean, that feeling that, oh, it pulls at my heartstrings. I don't know what to do because I love them and I want good things for them and I see them ending up with, you know, things that they're doing that are gonna hurt them. And actually some of the things that they're doing, they're actually hurting me, but everything that I've tried so far doesn't work. And on, on, on top of that, I feel like the farther I work toward trying to make things better, it's like it's getting worse. The more I do, it seems like it makes things worse, and so that's kind of what we've been dealing with in these uh, weeks of this series. So, just to catch you up in case you haven't been with us so far, um, you're you know associate pastor is an Eagles fan. I'll own it. Um, and so when I thought about the topic for this series, I thought about the song Desperado, um, which. Uh, you know, it could have, could have easily been a song written about the story of the prodigal son in the Bible because the lyrics match it so well. Um, and so we started thinking about, well, we're going to use the story of the prodigal son as the backbone for this series on boundaries because that is ground zero of where the Bible teaches, teaches us about having boundaries And then we decided to use the lyrics from the old Eagles tune, Desperado, as our sermon title. So the first week we had, why don't they come to their senses, which is really about the fact that you can't come to their senses for them. We we, we eventually have to grieve that. We have to let go of the idea that somehow I can make them come to their senses, I can come to their senses for them, that they're gonna have to come to their senses on their own. And that's very clear from the story of the prodigal son. Last week, we had a talk called These Things That Are Pleasing You. Originally, I wanted to call it These Things That Are Pleasing You Will Hurt You Somehow, but that's a really long sermon title, you know? But actually, the reason that we use that title is because that part of the song is a persuasive part, right? These things that are pleasing you will hurt you. You're trying to say, hey, wake up, pay attention, don't do this. And we said last week that actually making speeches over and over and over again to somebody who's making wrong choices may not only fall short of your goal, you'll fail to actually help them change, but sometimes it actually has a boomerang effect. And the more we make the speech, I mean, some of us, we become excellent speech makers. If we knew how good speech maker we're gonna end up being, we would have taken forensics in high school. We'd go back and do that. Parents in this room especially, I mean, some of the speeches you give your kids, those are really finely, you know, finely tuned. Problem is that speech comes out of your mouth 400, 500 times and your kid hasn't heard that speech in forever. Because we said last week that repetition, we have a sense that repetition actually increases somebody's sensitivity to what it is to our argument. The truth is repetition actually decreases a person's sensitivity to our argument. The more we repeat, the more intense we get, the less they listen. So last week we said it is impossible to talk a desperado into coming home. And part of that's because of the very nature of what a desperado is. We've been saying in this series that a desperado is a person that stubbornly chooses a path that hurts themselves and others. The reason you cannot talk a desperado into coming home is this word right here. There is stubbornness. That is baked into the desperado DNA. That I have to learn things for myself. I can't be taught or told Remember we said both, both the last two weeks, we said that wise people and foolish people, and the, the term foolish person is really the biblical term for a desperado, that wise person and foolish person, both of them make stupid mistakes. All of us make stupid mistakes. We all have things that we would point back to and say, well, that was dumb, right? The difference is a wise person can be confronted. And a wise person can be instructed and a wise person will make a course correction. Whereas a foolish person or a desperado cannot be confronted, they cannot be corrected. When you try to confront a desperado, they will either tune you out or they will rage out at you. So they'll either just turn a deaf ear to you, ignore you, or they'll get angry at you. Even though you're trying to help, they'll get angry at you and it'll create conflict between you and them. That inability to be confronted and inability uh, to listen to someone else about what it is that they're doing, that is at the the core of what we're going to talk about today because, and and by the way, I did tell everybody, I'm like, you got to be here for week three. Week three is the most important week. And one of the reasons for that is because I think we're going to talk about the most common mistake that people make when they love a desperado and probably the most damaging mistake. The first week we said you can't come to their senses for them. That's sort of a personal issue. The second week we said you can't talk them into making change. That's that's kind of a communication issue. But this week we're going to talk about the fact that you can't bail them out. And bailing someone out who's made a bad decision I think is, is something that we all feel a certain pull toward. We feel a certain responsibility to it, especially if you're a God follower. How many of you remember the parable of the unforgiving debtor? Does that parable scare you? Because it scares me. I read that parable and it says, here's this guy who owes a debt that he cannot pay. Not, not could he, he would never, if he worked every day for the rest of his life in a high paying job, he'd never be able to pay it off. And so he begs for forgiveness, begs for mercy, and he's completely forgiven of his debt. Well, this is Jesus illustrating what's happened with us and with God, that God has completely forgiven us of a debt that we could never pay. But then the guy whose debt was forgiven goes out and finds a guy who owes him a small debt, demands payment, and when the guy can't pay him that day, he turns them over to the jailer. And when the person who was owed the original debt hears about this, he turns over the original debtor to the tormentors, is what the Bible says, right? Um, So when I hear that, I think, whoa, I do not want to be that guy. I don't wanna be the unforgiving debtor, so God has forgiven me and God has shown grace to me, so I don't wanna have someone in my life that I don't show forgiveness and grace to. But unfortunately, sometimes that anxiety about not showing forgiveness and grace can actually lead us to also not have boundaries. And it can also sometimes cause us to interfere and interrupt with what God is doing in that person's life when they're hitting rock bottom. That's what we're gonna talk about um, today. Now, on the topic of hitting rock bottom, when that person that you love actually goes so low that you cannot imagine it going any lower. That's what we mean when we say they hit rock bottom is that we don't, we in our, in our mind, we cannot picture a lower place that they might sink to. And at that point, our attitude, I think, changes a little bit about it. As long as we can kind of see this is going in a bad direction, and I don't mean that... Uh, arrogantly. It's not like, well, I'm so much smarter than you. I can see where this is going. This usually is a matter of perspective, not intelligence. It's that I am not them. And I can kind of, I have that level of abstraction that I can kind of see where this is going because it's not me living it. I'm kind of looking at it from the outside and I see the train wreck that's coming. And so I want them to know about it. And while that's happening and they haven't hit rock bottom yet, I feel anxiety. I'm anxious for them. I'm anxious for what I know is, is coming. I can see it, I can see the train wreck coming. But when they hit rock bottom, is it not true that at that point our anxiety kind of turns to sadness? We're kind of sad, it's like, man. I just, my heart breaks for them. And on top of all that, if you're an empath like I am, like if you really have strong emotional connection to other people, you're gonna say, I really hate to see them like this. Like this is just not cool. Like where they are, maybe maybe it's that something where they were just recreationally playing around with drugs and then drugs just took over their life. And you kind of saw that coming and now they're at that moment and you think, I hate to see them like this. Here in in the Midwest, we have a huge opiate addiction problem. And that's become more so since I started um, counseling here at the church. And I've had people come in and say this exact thing to me. I've seen this person, now it's blown up their family, it's blown up their marriage, and I just hate to see them like this. And I think... That combination of, I don't want to be the unforgiving debtor, and I also hate to see them like this, is it not true that those two things make us feel like I need to bail them out? Whatever it takes to make this situation go away for them, especially if it feels like it won't hurt too much for us. Like, it's not going to put too much... Like, And I use the term bailing someone out. I'm not obviously talking about bailing someone out from, from jail, but actually that's not a bad example to use. Because when somebody ends up in jail and they call you... You're the fortunate person that gets that phone call. And they say, hey, I need you to come bail me out. What are they saying? Up until that point, they had some power about whether or not they were in jail. Up until that point. But now they have made a bargain by doing something wrong. They've ended up in jail. Now they have no power. They need to tap into your power. They need you to come down to the jail. They need you to sign on the dotted line. They need you to write a check and vouch for them, right? So they need, to, they need to use your power to get them out. And if you are thinking to yourself, I could afford it, it's not a big thing. It doesn't feel like a major hit to you. It can very much feel like, how could I be a Christian and say no in a situation like that? I mean, you have these two realities that you've got to grapple with. On the one side, you have someone that you love is in pain, and then additionally, you know you could make this less painful for them. How could a Christian say no to that? The question I want to answer in our time together today is when should you intervene to make the consequences of bad behavior less painful? When should I intervene to make the consequences of bad behavior less painful? And spoiler alert, the answer is not always, but it's also not never. You can tell from the way I'm setting this up. Maybe you thought, maybe you thought I was going to say you should never bail someone out. You, you, you should never uh, reduce the consequences of someone's pain. That's not true either. What you will find is that the father in the story of the prodigal son does reduce the consequences of the painful, of the behavior, of the pain that the, that the young son is experiencing from his behavior, but it happens at a certain time. The, the, the question of when, that's the important question. Now, In talking about this process, when do I get involved, it's very important for you to understand how a desperado learns. Different people learn things different ways. How many of you know there's a website out there called ratemyprofessor.com, right? For college students, all college students know about this site. Because when you go to register for classes, you understand that you are bargaining for a certain amount of pain, uh, but the question is, could I keep the pain to a minimum? And you understand, if you've been in college for any length of time, that you can have the same course number, same course title, same syllabus, same test, same papers to write, and very different levels of pain based off of which professor you choose to take from, right? Well, there are different professors in life that we learn from, right? So I'm gonna show you three professors in life. The first one is trust. And trust, I find to be the, the most, um, the, the least costly of the professors. The least pain that we go through is if there is a trusted source who will tell us which is the right direction to go. And then if we are willing to trust that source, then we can avoid hitting some very painful times, right? By the way, some people have a real thing about, well, the Bible's full of do's and don'ts. I find that most owner's manuals are. Right? I don't get real exercise when I'm a, I'm a photographer as a hobby so I have cameras and the cameras usually come with like a 200 page owner's manual and I do not look at that owner's manual and immediately toss it in the trash and say how dare Nikon tell me how to use my camera. Right? Because Nikon built it, they understand how it should be used. They understand the features of it. And so when God, who created the universe that we live in and created my, me and created all the people that, I, that are around me, tells me this is how the world works and this is how you should do this if you want a good outcome, this, this is more of an owner's manual thing. This is not a power trip. This is God saying this is how it works. And when we trust God, we can avoid so much pain by just saying, all right, that's the road I need to go down and choosing that. But not everybody learns from trust. Some of us have to learn from observation right? So there was a, a, a quote one time that a person made. He said, it, it may be a, a fool who doesn't learn from their own mistakes, but it's an absolute idiot who doesn't learn from other people's mistakes, you know? Because you don't have the pain of, of going through what they're going through, but there should be that thing that sort of registers for us and say, well, I don't want to do that because I've seen how that plays out. But some of us, we don't learn from, from a trusted source. We don't learn from observation. We have to learn from experience, we have to do it for ourselves, to learn the lesson for ourselves. I saw this at a restaurant the other day. We were at Abuelo's uh, having lunch, my wife and I. She got up from the table, she was gonna be back in just a minute, and there was a, a couple sitting across from us, and I wasn't trying to pay attention to them, but I bore easily, and I do have the spiritual gift of eavesdropping, and um, some kinda, you know, they're, they're over there. And now, at this restaurant, they often will bring out a plate, and they'll go, it's very hot, it's a very hot plate. you know. And set it down. And, and on top of all that, you should have a clue by the fact that they're carrying this plate around in like towels, like wrapped in, in you know, so they put this down and she says to the lady, she says, "Now it's a very hot plate. It's a very hot plate. And as soon as she walks away, the lady reaches out, ow, that's hot. <laughs> now I'm interested in what is the husband going to do? Now, the husband could learn from trust. The lady said it's hot. The the lady who dropped off the plate said, it's hot, don't touch it. So he could learn from trust. Or he could have learned from observation. His wife touched it and said, that's hot, right? But not this guy. (laughs) This guy says, oh, it's not that hot. Let me see it. And he reaches out and grabs the plate. And I swear I could hear his skin skin singeing, you know. (laughs) And he goes, oh my gosh, that's hot. That's who we're talking about the person who will not learn from a trusted source, they will not learn from observation, they have to learn by doing it themselves, desperados almost always have to learn from experience. And experience, sometimes you'll hear someone say, well experience is the best teacher, that's not true, experience is the most expensive teacher, it will hurt the most. And that's one of the reasons why it's so easy for us to want to intervene because it hurts and it's expensive. And we don't want them to experience pain and we don't want them to squander their resources. We want good things for them, right? So it's so easy to want to hop into the middle of that and do something. But what did we just say about experience? What is the benefit of experience to a desperado? That's how they learn. We've been talking about a story in the Bible that might as well have just been titled A Story of a Young Man Learning from Experience. Jesus was telling a story to teach from, and he said there was a father, there was these two sons, an older brother, younger brother. Younger brother goes to the dad and says, Dad, I really want my inheritance now. I could wait until you die, but um, yeah, it doesn't look like that's going to be anytime soon. So if you'll write the check, I'd appreciate it. I'm going to go do my own thing. Father for some reason, who represents God, writes the check, gives the son his inheritance, lets the son go off to the far off country. We said in week one, the reason that the father lets him go is because he understands that if the son was already in the far off country in his heart, keeping him in that house wasn't gonna do anything different. So the son goes off to the far off country, and there, the Bible says, he wasted all his money in riotous living, or wild living is this translation. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land. Now, we don't think about famine the way that people in the ancient world thought about famine. It's very easy for us to just read straight past that. And one of the reasons why it's easy for us to read straight past that is we have freezers. Within a, a good little distance of here, there are price club, warehouse things where there's food like you would not believe that will keep for a long time. In the ancient world, there was very little in terms of long-term food preservation. So when there was a famine, it was like a night and day difference. We used to have food, now we don't. Kind of worked like that. He began to starve and he persuaded a local farmer to hire him. And the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. All right, I don't, I don't want to go too deep into this, but I do want you to know that the fact that it was a local pig farmer means that he had gone a long way from home. The Jewish people did not keep pigs. And several people groups right around them did not keep pigs. And even if you went all the way into Egypt, there would not have been pigs in Egypt proper because the Egyptians despised anyone who kept pigs. They would eat, um, you know, bacon and all the wonderful things. Bacon is a wonderful thing. but They were fine with that. They just didn't want anybody farming pigs in their area. So that means that this young kid, you know, the way that Jesus is representing the story, he would have gone as far away as he could have gotten from home. He became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. What kind of pods are we talking about? We're talking about carob pods. And some of you, if you're trying to eat really healthy and you're doing kind of the health food thing, you may be familiar with carob pods. Because actually the little seeds inside the carob pods, when they're treated correctly, and, and, and um, you know I'm not smart about all that, but I know that when they're correctly cured and all that, they actually, um, become uh, very similar in taste to chocolate. They have a sweet taste, and especially if you add some sweetener to it, people will often use it as a substitute for chocolate. But the thing about it is, once you take the seeds away and maybe you strip a little bit of the inside of the pod out that also has a little bit of that sweet flavor, all you have left is this leathery, slimy, sticky thing that is bitter. And so what they would do is they would take all that out. They would take these slimy, it looks just like rotten bananas once, you, once you're finished with it. And they would feed that to the pigs. So this is what he's carrying out to the pigs. And this is what he wished he could eat. Now, when Jesus teaches, there's symbolism typically wrapped up in every little bit of what he teaches. And I do find it interesting that at this moment, he's had to come to terms with the fact that all the sweetness has been stripped out of life. I mean, everything that he, even at this point, he's willing, at this point, he's willing to just take the bitter part, but nobody will even give him the bitter part. Like, he knows the sweetness is gone. He would just take the bitter part if they would give it to him, but nobody will even give him the bitter part. When he finally came to his senses, remember that I said the when is important. When do I intervene? Well, when he finally came to his senses, He said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare. Here I'm dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he he returned home to his father. So notice he actually learned a lesson about what he had done and now he's making a, a comeback. He's making a turnaround. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming filled with love and compassion. By the way, if there's anybody in this room who's thinking, God has done with me. I've made so many mistakes that if God knew everything that I'd done, he would not take me. First of all, spoiler alert, God does know everything that you've done. And even knowing all of those things, if you ever wanna know what God's attitude is toward a person who's coming home, this is it. Filled with love and compassion. If you wonder how God feels about you, even with all the wrong that you've done, if you're ready to turn around and come home, God's heart is filled with love and compassion toward you. He ran to his son, he embraced him and kissed him. He said uh, his son said to him, "Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer being of worthy of being called your son." So he starts a speech and I love that the father doesn't let him finish it. "Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet," which indicated that he was still a member of the family. And kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found, and so the party began. And we talked last week about the importance of planning for the party. Okay, so we're gonna talk about trying to determine whether or not there is actual repentance so that I can begin to help reduce the consequences of this person's painful beer, as much as I can, as much as it is within me to try to help them, uh, I want to do that, but I need the when to be right. When should I do it? And part of that is understanding that not everyone, and this is very unfortunate, not everyone learns from the professor of experience. There are some people that rock along rock bottom, like they bump along the bottom. So they, they, they hit rock bottom, but they still don't learn, and so they keep bumping along the bottom. So we need to know the difference between that and actually hitting rock bottom and turning around and going in a different direction. Well, there's three things I've seen in my ministry, and I could probably have you know, refined it a little bit more nuanced, but these three things, I think, pretty much cover it. So there's bad choices, and the bad choices lead to loss and pain. This is pretty axiomatic. This is going to happen. When we make bad choices, they lead to loss and pain. But for some people, they don't learn from it. Instead, when they call you up, when they contact you, it's going to be blame and shame. I've come to just get used to this in my office. So blame and shame is, and we've talked about this last week and even the week before, it's everybody else's fault. The reason that I've hit rock bottom is because of this person and that person and this situation and that situation. If it hadn't been for all those things, I never would have made these choices. I never would have ended up here. So there's the blame. The shame part happens when you set a boundary and you say, I'm not going to bail you out. I'm not gonna bail you out this time. The shame is then, and you call yourself a Christian. You say that you consider yourself a loving person. How could you not do what I need you to do for me right now? You have it in your power. You're able to get me out of this. And I wouldn't be struggling like I am. I wouldn't be feeling this right now if you would just do it, you know, do whatever it takes to show me love. But you don't love me. You say you love me, but you don't love me. Blame and shame. Well, some people, that's not their M.O. This one's not hard to spot, by the way. This one just, it it just is really, it's like a mushroom cloud of emotion on blame and shame. But actually the one that's really hard to deal with is this middle one, which is to apologize and act differently. Because this is artificial repentance. Do any of y'all hate artificial sweetener as much as I do? I mean, sometimes my blessed wife, whom I love dearly, probably is in this service, would try to sneak artificial sweetener into my sweet tea. Now, I was born in Texas, and I can tell. (laughs) You put some artificial sweetener in my tea, I can tell. That stuff is close, but not quite. Artificial repentance is close, but not quite. So what you will get from them, it is not hard to mouth the words, I'm sorry. It is not hard to apologize. You can apologize and not have a heart change, right? And then on top of that, there is acting differently. And what I mean by acting is, acting. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a behind the mask thing. It's a drama. It's a play. I will act the part that you want me to act so that I will prove to you that you did the right thing to bail me out. I will start to act the way that I think you think is right. But in reality, I haven't really changed. And how do you know that that's happening? Well, there are a couple of really pretty, pretty reliable cl- clues. One is they will be telling you one thing about their situation, about their life, about their relationships, about whatever it is that got them into trouble, but you will begin to hear hear uh, through the grapevine that what they're presenting to you is very different than what's actually happening. You will find out that there is a veil. They are letting you know what they want to let you know they are, they are painting a picture for you of their life that is congruent with what they think you will be okay with so that you will help them out. But behind the veil, they're still doing the same old things, getting into the same kinds of trouble. And eventually you begin to realize that. And there's a part of us that goes, How, why on earth would they deceive me? Because the truth is artificial repentance, artificial repentance will get people out of trouble until we eventually learn what we're looking at. Because we really do think it is repentance. And because our heart is in the right place, we want to help. But then eventually we learn what we're looking at, and that's when we kind of have to step back and say, no, you know what, this isn't the real thing. What is real repentance? We use that word in the, you know, a lot in church, and it's in, and it's in the Bible. What is real repentance? Repentance is learning and turning, right? So the, the, the best biblical translation for the word that gets used in the Greek language for repentance is to change your mind. Right? So I'm saying, at this point, I was going down this road. And and there was a time when I thought this was the right road to go down. There was a time when this felt right. The Bible tells us that sin feels wonderful for a season. I'm going down this road because it feels like the right thing to me, and I'm walking down this road. But as I am, I'm experiencing consequences, things that are teaching me that I I really didn't want what I thought I wanted. I I, I really don't want what I bargained for. And eventually I start to learn that this is not the road I want to go down, and I turn and start to go in the other direction. The problem is, if what you have is fake repentance, it sounds like learning and turning, but they're still going in the same direction that they were before and they haven't learned anything. Here's what I want you to know and, and I'm saying this in love because I know if you're, if you're living this right now, this is, this is a tough pill to swallow because it's, just, it's so complicated and so difficult. But when we bail someone out, we actually prolong the pain of their learning experience. Multiple authors have talked about God using pain as a megaphone not because God wants to bring pain into our life, but when pain is in our life because of consequences, because of what we've done, a lot of times God will use that to get our attention because how many of us know pain will get your attention? So we're, we're, some, sometimes a person is in the process of learning their lesson and we intervene and reduce the consequences and what happens? Well, the whole sequence of them learning from God is broken and they have to start all over again. It's kind of like a snooze alarm. I'm famous for hitting the snooze a gazillion times on on my alarm. My roommates in college taped uh, my alarm once to the underside of my bed um, just because they didn't want me to hit the snooze. But I I know something about the app on my phone now that does the the alarm. When you press the snooze button, it's still going to go off again. And the next time it goes off, it's going to be louder. And that's what we're talking about here, is that sometimes bailing someone out is like pressing the snooze alarm. We get peace again and life seems to just sort of be back to normal, but the problem is that alarm is gonna go back off again, and next time it's gonna be even louder. say, Jonathan, you're confusing me. You're saying sometimes we ought to try to help reduce consequences, other times we ought not to. What it, where's the dividing line? The dividing line is between compromise and mercy. God does not compromise, amen? This is something that our culture should probably come to terms with. God is not in the business of compromising, but God is in the business of mercy. What's the difference? Compromise is easing the burden of consequences before repentance. That is the Father saying, I will, I, I will come to the far off country and get you, and and I will, I will take you to the stores and and get you out of those those rags you're wearing and this pigsty that you're working in. And I will dress you in a nice Armani suit again, like you were back when you were living with me. And I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna take you home, and I'm gonna make all this go away for you. Compromise is easing those burden, the the burden of those consequences before repentance. Mercy, on the other hand, is easing the burden of consequences after repentance there actually has to be a change of heart. And after a heart change happens, often, and this is where we tie back into the parable of the unforgiving debtor, often, after our heart has changed, there is still no way that we can go back and undo what we have done. There's still no way that we can go back and and clean up all the messes that we've made. And then as the body of Christ, as God's representatives in this world, we show mercy to say, you don't have to go back and clean up every mess. You don't have to go back and fix every mistake. This is about today. The important thing about Jesus, look at when Jesus talked to sinners in the Bible. It was always about today and the future. It was never about the past. It was about where are you at today and where are we going with this? In the book of Joel, Prophet Joel's writing to the, uh, the Jewish people, and he's saying, Look, you're going through a lot of trouble because God's trying to get your attention. They were being invaded by the Assyrians, uh, they, they had a plague of locusts, that ought to get your attention. Um, they were having all kinds of economic troubles. And Joel was trying to say, God is trying to get your attention. He says, this is why the Lord says, turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. By the way, notice that word, turning. You were going down this road, and God is saying, what you need to do right now is you need to turn around. You need to go in a different direction. He says, give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. He's saying, don't just bring an apology. Bring a heart change. See, tearing your clothes in that culture was a sign of grief. It was a sign of desperation and grief. But like all... Like all desperation and grief Messages eventually it just boils down to words. And it's very easy to do that, but not to feel it. And so so what God is saying to them is, look, don't come to me with something that is empty, just a symbol, just a representation. No, you need to actually have a heart change. You need to actually make a turnaround. You need to change your mind and change your direction. And then if that happens, then things can change. Check this out. He says, return to the Lord, your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. But I want you to see this word. He is eager to Relent and not to punish, sending you a blessing instead of this curse. What does it mean to be eager to do something? It means that I want to, but I can't yet. I'm eager to go on this trip, but it's not time yet. I'm 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 eager to get into college, but I haven't graduated from high school yet. There's this eagerness. I I I want to do it, but there's something holding me back. What is the thing that is holding him back? Joel is telling him, "You haven't turned yet. When you turn, then he can relent. But right now, he can't because you're continuing to go down the same road, and you're having to learn from experience." how can you tell then if we're saying that genuine repentance should be the hinge on which mercy swings, then how do you tell if somebody is genuinely repentant? Well, the difference between you and God is that God knows instantly. If a person is truly repentant, God knows right away. You won't. So that means that you're going to have to observe some things over time and you won't be able to sometimes reestablish the relationship as fast as God does. God will reestablish a relationship with you in a second. If you are ready to turn around and come back to God, God will reestablish that relationship in a second. But human beings, there's so much that we don't know. We're uh, We're not omniscient like the Lord is, so we're gonna have to wait and see. There are some things, though, that if you wait and see, they can be indicators that a person truly is repentant. By the way, in terms of the idea that somebody might deceive you, Jesus was talking about this in Matthew 7. And he says, if a person's trying to deceive you, it's important to know that you can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. See the system here. It's basically, he's saying, every, uh, he says that uh, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people, how church? By their actions. You can identify people by the fruit of their actions. So what kind of fruit should we be watching for? Like what kind of action should we be looking for? The first thing is you need to see a new attitude a new attitude. Meaning, when the son left the home to go off to the far off country, he had a certain way of thinking about home and he had a certain way of thinking about the far off country. He despised his home and he despised his father and he idealized the far off country. The far off country is where I wanna be, that is freedom, that is success, that is I don't have to live under my dad's thumb anymore. An attitude change is when what we used to despise we now idealize. And what we used to idealize we now despise. That is the the Christian turnaround, right? So the Bible says when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself at home, the place he used to despise, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. What is he doing? He's talking up the place that he used to talk down. I now see that what I used to think was bad is actually good. And then he says here, the place he used to idealize, I'm dying of hunger. So you notice what's happening. He's saying, I feel differently both about the place that I walked away from and the place that I went to. I'm ready now to think of it in a completely different way. So a person's behavior changing is not enough. Church, listen to me. A person's behavior behavior change is not good enough. That will be temporary. What has to happen is there must be an attitude change. The attitude change comes first, then the behavior change, and that might actually stick. The second thing that you need to look for is separation from the old life. See, the thing is, a lot of us tend to hang on to things in our old life and say that we're repenting at the same time, it does not work. He says, I will go home. Forgive the, you know, anachronism because I'm really stuck in those, in the series for some reason, but he doesn't say, I will call my dad and tell him to come get me. He says, I will get up and I will go home. Why? Because he recognized that every mile he covered in the wrong direction, he needed to go backwards and cover it in the right direction. I have so many men in my office over the years who, you know, they come to me because they've had an affair on their wife and they say to me, when will she get over this? It's not a matter of getting over this. I don't think that will ever happen. You're working towards a new normal and that new normal is going to hopefully be better than your old normal, but it's never going to be the same. You're never going to be able to get exactly back to where you were before. But the one thing I can tell you is you're gonna have to get rid of the things that you were doing when this happened. You're gonna have to get rid of the friends you used to have. You're gonna have to get rid of the habits you used to have. You're gonna have to think differently about what you're doing. You're gonna have to let go of the old way of life. There's a verse in Matthew, Jesus' teaching, used to freak me out. Because it says, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, just cut it off and throw it away. That seems a little extreme. But you know what Jesus is trying to say here? What Jesus is trying to say is you can't walk away from something you won't let go of. And so many of us, we want to we want to hold on to the old life and walk away from it simultaneously. And we feel really and we go to church, we feel that, you know, that oh, I need to I need to walk away from this. I need to do something different. But then we're really kind of hesitant to let go of some things, maybe again, some relationships or some habits or some things that have really become a part of our life. But the thing is, walking away always also means letting go. I've got to let go of what I'm walking away from. Third, accepting responsibility. And this has been a theme already in this series, but notice it says, he says, I have sinned against both heaven and you. One of the signs that a person is not repenting is that they will still explain away their choices in terms of other people. So they're still blaming, but they're kind of apologizing at the same time. Dad, I'm sorry that I went off to the far off country. I'm sorry that I made all those mistakes, squandered the money. But you know what? If you had been less of a disciplinarian, I mean, if you'd been a little bit easier to live with and you had recognized that I was growing up, give me some space, let me do my thing, I wouldn't have really had to do that. But I still, you know, I own it. Nothing frustrates me more than somebody saying they're taking ownership of something and simultaneously explaining why it's everybody else's fault. Right? Ultimately, repentance means being ready to say this was my fault. I have to be willing to say that's on me. I did that. Fourth, there needs to be and this is the final one, submission to the process. There needs to be submission to the process. There's going to be a process of healing. When a person has been violating boundaries and causing pain, a season of healing is an absolute necessity. And in the process of healing, you will not get to dictate, the desperado does not get to dictate the terms of the healing season. You don't get to do your own open heart surgery. You're gonna have to submit to the process. You're gonna have to submit to godly others who are willing to give you some guidance on how you can turn around. It's gonna to have to, to be an understanding that things have changed. Notice that he says, I will go home, I'll say to my father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Notice, he realizes he, oh, this is so important, he cannot elevate himself back to son status, right? Are we clear on that? He, he realizes he cannot go in and demand that he get his old spot, his old room his relationship, all the participation and all the family experiences. He recognizes that if anybody raises him back up to that status, it'll have to be who? It'll have to be the father. There has to be a recognition that things have changed and it's a willingness to accept a new normal. So it means that I will have to set new limits on things that I used to not limit myself in if I'm a desperado. Things I used to say yes to if I'm a desperado, I will have to now say no to, right? One of the things that we talked about um, in the last series is making the right thing easy to do and the wrong thing hard to do. The person that is having to regain trust in me is gonna have to see me making the right thing easy to do and the wrong thing hard to do. I'm gonna have to submit to the process. I, I thought a lot about where to land this message, because I I really feel like you could hear from me that this is some opportunity for us to celebrate tough love. There are some people probably in this room that are like, this series has been the best, because my spouse is such a touchy-feely, warm, huggy, fuzzy, like, let's do whatever it takes. And I've been telling my spouse, tough love, I got it on, you know, I've got my vanity plate that says tough love, you know, this is my thing. Well, if that's the case, Let me lovingly confront you about the older brother. Because the older brother would have said he was all about tough love, but you know what his problem was? He was angry. He was angry. He didn't want his brother to come home. Didn't seem fair to him. He was mad. And so tough love for him was a way of working off all that anger that had happened. But you understand when I started off saying that we cannot afford to be the unforgiving debtor, that's what I'm talking about. We, don't have, we, we, we cannot allow ourselves to get into an angry place and to use tough love as our outlet for our emotion. You say, well, Jonathan, I don't know. That, I, that's hard for me to process. How do I know whether that's what's going on for me or not? You know by how you would respond if that person turned around. If that person turned around, but you're still angry, and you're not done being angry yet, and you're kind of upset because you're like, I think this person needs some more tough love. You know, I mean, I can appreciate that they're learning and turning, but I think they need some more tough love, then it may be an anger thing. On the other hand, if you're ready like the father to celebrate when that person learns and turns... If you're more in a grief place right now about them than an anger place, you're sad, you're not mad, you wanna see them make the right choice, and when that person turns around, you're ready to throw a party and celebrate with them, then I think your heart's in the right place. You just have to sort of push through these days where the temptation is to get in there and make the problem go away and say, God, if this is a learning season, please help them come to their senses sooner rather than later so they don't have to live this any longer, one minute longer than they have to. Can I pray for you? Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about how you've designed us. Father, help us to learn from trusting you. Help us not to go through the expensive, painful ways of learning things, and help us to have discernment about when we should intervene with those who are having to learn from experience. Give us your wisdom, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for being here, we'll see you next week.